Today, I'm speaking with Santosh Harish. Santosh leads open philanthropy's grant making in South Asian air quality, which he's been doing from his office in India since the start of 2022. How bad is air pollution? Air pollution is the single largest environmental and occupational risk factor to public health globally. Per the global burden of disease estimates, uh, it accounts for something like 6.67 million deaths a year. Uh, This was as of 2019, which to give context is about 12% of all deaths globally, right? Not all of this is particulate matter. Particulate matter is um, the vast majority of this. Uh, a small fraction of this is is what's called ground level ozone. But yeah, uh, it's 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 pretty bad. So 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 when I started working on air pollution, which is about roughly a decade back, right? Some some of these number high numbers were sort of hard to sort of um, come to terms with, right? It, it, it almost seems implausibly large uh, intuitively because you're like, okay, well, it's it's bad. I mean, it's 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 presumably bad for your lungs or something, but uh, could it really be this bad? So the, the thing about air pollution, which makes it so harmful, and in particular particulate matter air pollution, is that particulate matter is not a single substance, right? It's, 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 it's a cocktail of various things that are in the air um, that just happen to be uh, finer than 2.5 microns in diameter, which is a tiny fraction of um, how thick your hair is. And it it is composed of a variety of chemical substances, some of which uh, are relatively harmless, some of which are extremely toxic. So it it could be stuff like soil dust, which is sort of naturally occurring, or, or, or sea salt, which are likely to be you know, not particularly harmful. And then there is stuff like lead and other heavy metals that are that are suspended in uh, in the air. Uh, there are uh, inorganic compounds like sulfates and nitrates, which sort of originate from vehicular emissions, from coal power plant uh, emissions and so on. So it's, it's a variety of different things. Because these particles are as fine as they are, they are able to enter the enter the lungs, enter the the systemic circulation, and then basically these various things that 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 have no business being in our body can sort of travel to different organs and cause a variety of different harms. Yeah, what is perhaps the most outrageous or emotionally grabbing example of of air pollution to you? So something I, the thing that I have in mind is something that barely benefits the person who's emitting all of this pollution, but it's causing massive health damage to people uh, to people in the nearby area. One thing that comes to mind is um, sort of municipal waste burning that happens in, you know, sort of many cities in the, the global south. So basically, this is waste that gets collected from people's homes. And, and instead of sort of being transported to a, a waste management facility or a landfill or something, basically gets burnt at some point because that's like the fastest way to uh, to dispose of it, um, which really sort of points to a poor delivery of public services, right? But this is like ubiquitous in, you know, virtually every small or even like medium-sized city. Um, it, it happens in larger cities too in this part of the world. So I think that's something that sort of truly annoys me because it it feels like the kind of thing that ought to be you know fairly easily managed, but it happens a lot. It happens because people presumably don't think that it's particularly harmful. I don't think it saves a ton of money uh, for the for the municipal corporations and other local government that that I meant to sort of manage it. So, so that's that's one example that comes to mind. It, I find it particularly annoying simply because it's, uh, it, it happens so often. It's something that, 
you know, you're, you're able to smell in, in so many different uh, parts of these cities. Mm. Another, which uh, seems sort of downright evil to me, is um, a whole bunch of industries that tend to not use the pollution control equipment that they have in their facilities already, right? And and just basically like dump the the, the flue gas, as it's called, the the gas that gets uh, emitted from the the various processes in the in the industry you know, without the, the emission controls in the middle of the night uh, when it's it's not obvious. I mean, it, it can't be detected as easily as it would in the day. And this is basically to, again, like save what I suspect is change, right? In, in terms of like maintenance and operation costs of this equipment. You have the equipment and, and there are these standards. And yeah, so that's, I think, downright evil on, on sort of the part of these industries. Misconceptions about air pollution. Yeah, so uh, I, I think one that um, is is actually a, a significant sort of um, a hindrance to uh, effective policy in in India and uh, similar countries is that air pollution is assumed to be an urban problem. This was certainly true in you know, sort of big uh, industrial cities and so on, where sort of air pollution started becoming sort of uh, visible and salient. Um, so I'm thinking of London or Pittsburgh, Los Angeles. Uh, so in, in in places like India, though, that's that's just not true because uh, rural air pollution can be significant. In fact, it's it's on average, uh, rural exposure is not very different from urban exposure. One of the largest sources of air pollution exposure in, in, in India, in, in Pakistan, a uh, whole bunch of other countries would actually be the household burning of solid fuels, uh, wood and uh, dung cakes and you know, things like that. And um, yeah, uh, so so it, it's, it's actually not at all um, an, an urban issue alone. And hmm. historically, it has been treated as, as that. Uh, so, for example, there are no rural air quality monitors in India. And uh, okay. it's sort of a chicken and egg thing, right? So uh, till recently, the question, the the response to why there aren't question, there aren't monitors there was that look, it's we know villages are clean. Uh, that's where you go when you know you have respiratory problems and so on, right? Uh, and so, so yeah, uh, it it neither gets sort of measured because uh, it's it's assumed to be uh, not a problem, and because there isn't any measurement to suggest otherwise, that never really gets updated. So yeah, so mm. uh, because there are alternative sources of data now, um, satellite data-based estimates of air pollution, for example, I think there is growing uh, evidence that rural air pollution can be substantial uh, and therefore there has been a growing demand for uh, air quality monitoring in, in rural areas. Another sort of misconception that in some ways we touched upon, right, is, is that there are sort of safe levels of, of, of air pollution, that, that um, it's, it's only like the truly apocalyptic levels um, that, that one sees, for example, in winters in, in, in places like Delhi and so on. Um, only that's what harms you. Um, that unfortunately just doesn't seem to be true. Uh, impacts have been detected at much lower levels uh, that were previously considered safe. An unusual type of misconception uh, that's sometimes popular uh, in sort of government circles is that air pollution is something that you can build immunity to. Um, oh, wow. I've never heard that one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's, it's, it's something that, uh, yeah, uh, as ridiculous as that sounds, right? I mean... Well, I guess it's like uh, if you go out in the sun a lot, maybe you get a tan, which slightly helps you to not get sunburned. But uh, I don't imagine you can, your body can do that with particulate pollution. Yeah. And I mean, the idea is that, you know, like, like everything else. So um, there's sort of this... Uh, 
uh, insistence by, I, I certainly don't think all regulators, but by some that uh, Indian lungs, for example, are just better able to handle air pollution than, okay. uh, than for example, American lungs, right? Because we've been exposed to it. Um, You're used to it, okay. Over a period of time, so we've got used to it. So we don't routinely fall sick uh, when the levels of air pollution are high. And uh, when somebody's visiting Delhi or something, they... You feel it. Mm. You, you you feel mm. the difference quite viscerally. And um, so that clearly points to like Indian lungs being better adapted. I mean, that's that's of course nonsense. And but yeah, it's it's unfortunately like a persistent myth that it has sort of been hard to shake off. One of the implications of that also has been a general skepticism towards like the public health impact estimates um, from sources like the GBD uh, here. So, so there's sort of an insistence that we need more indigenous uh, research sort of studying health impacts, you know, in Indian populations and that uh, these extrapolations from, from, from other parts of the world um, are, are just not relevant. Why air pollution has gotten worse in India? I think the at a high level, it's less about policy mistakes uh, than it has been about policy neglect, right? So the Air Act in India, is, you know, sort of dates back to 1981, and in many ways, the regulatory apparatus that sort of resulted from the Air Act is sort of reflects the understanding, you know, of that time, right? So the 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 pollution control boards, the pollution control boards at the state level and at the central or or, or federal level. These have been primarily set up to deal with industrial pollution because at the time, um, sort of that was the, the general sense that, you know, this has got to be an, an industrial emissions kind of a problem. Over time, um, and so like in the, in the mid to late 1990s, primarily because of sort of civil society advocacy and the interventions of the, uh, the judiciary, the, the, the Supreme Court uh, of India, uh, it sort of expanded to include vehicular emissions in big cities. But till the maybe the middle of the last decade, you know, like around 2013, 2014, 2015, where in many ways air pollution once again started becoming more visible um, in Indian media and therefore, you know, sort of it became sort of more salient. Um, and, and there were a bunch of these source apportionment studies that got commissioned and, and got publicized. That was it. So that, that, that was basically the extent to which the, the regulatory apparatus was ready. So these other sources like waste burning or, or household burning, they were completely neglected, right? Household burning, for example, and I think this, we've still not sort of recovered from that. Uh, uh, it's assumed that the household burning of solid fuels is something that leads to indoor air pollution and that really doesn't have much of an impact on pollution outdoors. That's just not true as per the the, the literature. And um, so, yeah, so that's that's sort of been completely neglected and sort of treated as sort of a, a distinct problem. Because the regulatory apparatus has been set up for industrial pollution, the pollution control boards are, are not really well equipped to deal with sort of the updated understanding of where air pollution seems to come from and therefore what you ought to be doing about it, right? Um, so if you consider, for example, waste burning, um, this is something that really falls under the jurisdiction of the municipal corporations, the, the local government. The municipal corporations have never had to think about air pollution like ever, Right. This simply isn't something that they think of as something that falls under their mandate till at least very recently. And therefore, the, the agencies that are supposed to be doing something about air pollution, the, the pollution control boards don't have the jurisdiction on, on this source. The agencies that do have the jurisdiction are just, they, uh, uh, have not had the regulatory experience or 
the the capacity to deal with this and and therefore it has sort of fallen under fallen between the the the, the cracks a bit in terms of policy missteps though um, when it comes to industrial pollution the the regulatory regime in, in many ways has sort of not been designed in a manner that is flexible enough and uh, sufficiently in sync with sort of the challenges of regulation in the field right so with with industrial emissions typically the way uh, regulation functions is that all of these industries that pollute have chimney stacks right from where the the the, the flue gas and, and the other pollutants escape for the longest time um, across the world uh, regulation was basically about like the height of the chimney stack so the assumption was <laughs> that you make that tall enough and uh, the impacts are not sort of felt in the, the immediate vicinity, which is not untrue, except that the pollution can travel and, and over time all of this adds up. And so, so yeah, so, so the sort of the next generation of regulation in many ways was to set standards for what the concentrations of pollutants in these chimneys could be. Um, so there is a mechanism by which the pollutants are measured uh, in the chimney. You, you sort of compare it with what the regulatory standard ought to be. In order to comply with these standards, the industries basically install a bunch of pollution control equipment, uh, scrubbers and filters and things called cyclones and so on, which are meant to sort of clean up the air. And um, regulators basically measure this uh, from time to time. If you're found to be above the standards that have sort of been given to you, there is some form of, you know, sort of punitive action, right? The way this mechanism has been set up in India has sort of relied on sort of uh, what are called command and control instruments, right? So, so basically there is a standard. You're meant to be under that standard. Somebody comes and measures this from time to time. If you're above that standard, it is a criminal offense. And therefore there's going to be like a, a lawsuit filed against you. You could land up in jail and sort of pay a, a fine of some kind. In practice, the, the legal system in India is sort of backed up. Uh, most cases take years and years and years. Uh, if uh, the, the actual compliance against these standards is quite poor, so even sort of based on some data from a few years back, something like 50% of uh, uh, industries in the state of Maharashtra, for example, were not in compliance with the, the particulate matter uh, norms. Um, so there's widespread non-compliance. Mm. The pollution control boards are understaffed. There is no real mechanism by which they can go after these many industries that are flouting the law. As a result, for the most part, the, the regulatory regime just sort of fails, right? So... If uh, a particular industry is found to be non-compliant, uh, there is sort of a gentle slap on the wrist. There is some kind of polite correspondence uh, where the regulator writes to the industry and sort of asks them to sort of explain themselves and, and sort of ends with that. Um, there is very little action sort of taken. So the policy misstep, I guess, is that the sort of evolution that the, the regulatory framework should have had over time um, from being reliant purely on these extremely rigid, some may say even sort of draconian command and control type regulations towards a wider variety of sort of more flexible tools that allow the regulator to sort of levy fines, right? Without having to like file a criminal lawsuit and so forth. That, that evolution just did not happen. And, and as a result, um, non-compliance became sort of widespread. The amount of industrial activity in the country increased. Uh, the pollution control boards were never really being uh, able to sort of keep up with it. And um, the, the one sort of source of air pollution that ought to have been sort of regulated well also did not see sort of much progress. 
Why aren't people able to fix these problems? From what I've heard, I think you mentioned in a talk that, um, oddly enough, in India, when, when air pollution comes up, that the government often uh, turns to, or city governments can turn to outdoor air purifiers, for example, as a, as a, as a possible solution. Maybe because it's very visible and looks and it kind of looks cool, but is incredibly expensive and incredibly ineffective, as you might imagine. Sticking an air purifier outside, it's there's only so much that that is possibly going to do yeah. if you haven't done anything to control the source of, of of the air pollution. What is going wrong there? What what why why aren't people able to kind of fix these problems? Given that it uh, seems kind of obvious what what improvements there might be. Right. So starting with the the outdoor air purifiers, right? So I guess the charitable way of seeing it, I mean, I'm a fairly optimistic person. So I guess one way you could see this is that this in some ways is a manifestation of the public demand for like cleaner air going up and like governments at least being forced to do something. And and, and sort of smog towers, as they're called, are you could imagine sort of the, the case for them, right? That they're sort of plausibly useful, like They'll do something. They're sort of physical, visible manifestations of the intent of governments to like clean up the air. And perhaps equally importantly, it leaves nobody worse off, I guess, in the, in, in the near term. So, because taxpayers. Yeah, but. the taxpayers, <laughs> but, but it's sort of, it's, it's not as visible. Spread very widely. Exactly. And, and, and so that's, that's one reason why smog towers are so attractive that, that you don't actually have to, like most regulation has winners and losers. Um, and and so here, except for, I guess, the, the taxpayers um, who might not be noticing it, um, nobody's really left worse off. Um, and, and therefore, it sort of is sort of politically very viable. But yeah, I mean, let, let's be clear. These are, this is an absolute waste of resources. They will do absolutely nothing. I mean, sure, they may clean up the air like a couple of meters away from wherever they are stationed. But, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, it's, it's highly ineffective. Part of the problem here seems to be that it's, look, the, the sources are visible, sure. Uh, for some of them, there are like obviously good longer term actions that you ought to be taking. Um, so vehicles are a problem. You need to like reduce the number of private vehicles on the road. You need to reduce the number of dirty vehicles on the road. Uh, so you can have a bunch of policy actions that try to clean up the fleet that could potentially, you know, sort of increase the, uh, improve the public transport infrastructure in cities and things like that. But in the near term, that sort of most governments try to sort of optimize for, right? One of the challenges is that we don't have like a menu of easy to implement sort of scalable solutions. I think that has been one of the challenges. Uh, and I think there are, I, I think there's a legitimate uncertainty on, you know, if you were a uh, a municipal commissioner, right, in one of the Indian cities, or you were the, the secretary for uh, in, the, in the Department of uh, Environment at a state level, and you had a pot of money to be able to deploy. I, I do think that there is a, a certain gap in terms of saying, okay, well, here are sort of the top 10 things that you ought to be doing. Here are like the sort of the most cost-effective interventions that you ought to be investing in. I think that, that there's actually a, a, a significant gap in the literature it's it's not sufficient to say that you know I mean, you need to be ha- uh, you need to have more uh, buses on the roads that that might not be under your mandate that might be much more expensive than you can afford uh, in the near term uh, with the sort of constraints you've got and i think that's that's been one of the challenges with sort of being able to make progress in india uh, as a result uh, for the most part what the the cities have been doing is is basically dust control type measures right uh, having these um, mechanical street sweepers clean up the roads like they'll do something we don't necessarily know 
how much they actually improve the the air pollution, you know, even on these roads. That's, for example, some of the stuff that we've just funded uh, to try and like get a handle on how much of an impact this might truly have. It's not obvious at all that these are that these are cost effective things to be uh, putting your money behind. But it's the kind of thing where it's not expensive enough to you know for you not for the for the government agencies not to be able to procure them and again it's it's the kind of capital uh investments that the corporations can do more easily than some of the harder sort of improvements in terms of how you operate how waste management in a particular city functions i mean that's like a systemic thing right um it's much easier to like purchase 10 of these street sweepers or something put them on the road and hope to god that it sort of makes a difference uh, and unfortunately that's that's what they've been doing role that courts have played in air pollution regulation in India. The judiciary has played an outsized and in many ways like a completely unintuitive role uh, in uh, air pollution regulation in India. Basically, you know, there's this instrument of public interest litigations that, you know, that, that have been instrumental in, in, in leading to these uh, court judgments. Some of these PILs, by the way, are still active, right? So, so the, the cases that were initiated in the mid to late 90s that, that are still running today. Sorry, you're saying that, that the court cases are still ongoing? The, the, the court cases are still ongoing. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I, and so, in a sense, there have been multiple sort of orders and judgments, but that it, it hasn't sort of concluded. I, and the court continues to sort of play this quasi-executive, sometimes quasi-legislative, sometimes role in, in sort of designing policy. Some of those interventions... I think were ultimately good and, and resulted in, in improvements. Some of those judgments have actually been pretty poor. The courts are simply not the places for, for some of these uh, decisions to be made. Yeah, in general, we don't expect courts to be a good place to be doing cost-benefit analysis and setting budgets and so on. That's, that's like not their strength. It's not the strength of lawyers. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and it's also not the place where you necessarily have a like a, a, a democratic reconciliation of like the various people who are affected by the judgments. I mean, the, the, the case that you mentioned on like the getting the buses off the road and this mandate that buses can only run on uh, compressed natural gas. It's not obvious if the, the, the state government or the federal government would have made that call because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not obvious that it sort of passes muster in terms of, you know, who's left worse off. It, it did paralyze public transport in, in Delhi. It's also true that we can be reasonably confident that uh, Delhi's air quality actually improved for almost a period of five to eight years as a result of uh, that ban. Like you said, uh, the long-term impact was that more people then relied on private vehicles because the number of vehicles in Delhi boomed. Um, and, and that sort of was the reason there was a, an, an uptick again uh, in pollution levels, which eventually resulted in sort of increased attention uh, and increased acknowledgement of the problem in, I don't know, like 2014, 2015. The catalyst in 2014, 2015 was unfortunately again the courts, right? Uh, it, it so So yeah, so there has been that sort of problem of policy neglect um, has sort of manifested in the the executive and to an even larger extent, the legislature sort of completely ignoring the problem and the judiciary having to step in. The judiciary is sort of limited to fairly blunt instruments 
the courts are not the 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 places for cost benefit analysis as you put it and and that has uh, unfortunate consequences that's increasingly less and less the case though uh, the courts have become uh, less activist activity uh, over time the smock towers in delhi by the way was uh, a direct uh, result of a court judgment the, the what sorry the the outdoor air purifiers um okay right. yeah, uh, that, yeah that came uh, as a direct uh, result of the courts basically demanded that uh, <laughs> supreme court demanded that these be uh, set up because something has to be done for you know delhi's air quality can philanthropists drive policy change yeah so i mean, i i am I'm, i'm definitely fairly bullish about sort of the the possibility of of progress through the work that that individual researchers and think tanks and policy advocacy groups can can do yeah i mean i think there are there are certain areas where the the possibilities of leverage are are, are pretty high um and and therefore small grants can have sort of outsized impact one constraint as as a grant maker here uh, is sort of um because you know i i represent an international foundation and sort of the the foreign funding rules in india are are fairly restrictive and this is especially the case when it comes to um sort of environmental work um which i think has often been interpreted as being adversarial when it comes to um sort of industrial and economic development in india right so so that that does restrict the 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 types of grants that 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 one could make right so for example we talked about how the judiciary has had uh, had a huge influence i i am fairly ambivalent about sort of the overall like the impact that the the courts have had i mean i, I do think that some good things have happened as a result of it but i also think that they are not necessarily the places where this decision making should be done but either way uh, that seems like a potentially important institution to be able to influence or or work with right but as a as a grant maker like that's something that i can't touch i say or at least have chosen not to touch i mean i think uh, there are you know sort of following the letter of the law there's certain things that you can and cannot do but there's also like the spirit of the thing and uh, we have been fairly sort of uh, careful careful media is sort of another sort of important sort of agent of change um uh, arguably one of the things that ended up leading to uh, sort of this increased uh, pace of activity over you know since maybe 2015 2016 was that uh, media outlets took notice and um, there were just a lot more stories um, and over a period of time these stories became more and more sophisticated in sort of their understanding of the signs of air pollution and you know um, what governments ought to be doing and not doing and you know, things like that so that had an important role again that's something that as an international uh, foundation we, we can't make direct grants to Oh really? It's it's just not permitted to do anything uh, regarding the- It's it's not permitted. You 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 cannot um you you cannot fund uh journalists um to sort of write stories because it it could be interpreted that this is basically like a a foreign actor trying to influence sort of the media discourse and therefore um yeah the general narratives within a country. So uh, so so some of those are uh, the types of things that could plausibly lead to changes um and and have very high leverage but stuff that that we can't and should not do it's off the table unfortunately they're, they're off the table as as an indian citizen i i understand where this comes from some of it yeah of course seems to me as a sort of being potentially defensive but 
this really sort of feels uh, above my pay grade. And I, I, I think it, it's entirely reasonable to sort of be compliant with the spirit of some of these restrictions, um, even if that means that you, may, you do have some opportunities off the table. Um, I wish there was sort of more domestic funding in India that was sort of trying to go behind these opportunities and, and be engaged in equality that, that unfortunately has not been enough of the case. I mean, it, it, it's a fairly neglected uh, area even from a domestic funding standpoint. So yeah, so, so we've had to therefore restrict ourselves to uh, certain types of grant-making opportunities. But, but I do think that there is still plenty of uh, highly cost-effective opportunities on the table. 